Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of WorthPoint LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WorthPoint. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey everyone, John Chapman here. Thanks so much for joining us again on the podcast. We've got Chris Calkin here today. Chris and I go back. We met in 20, 2007 at the University of Washington. Chris is a total hard charger. I admire his work ethic and uh, everything that he does. Chris has a great story. He shares some funny comments about being deported from the UK when he was 21 and then just shares with us his career path through tech, uh, getting an MBA at Oxford, and then some best practices for those that are considering changing jobs or entering sort of a business development or sales career, especially now that he's a hiring manager and gets to see a lot of that. So whether you're uh, just starting out your career or in tech or thinking about being in a, in a sales position, this is a must list. To. So hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again for tuning in. And now let's introduce Chris. Chris, let's start it off. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, yeah. Happy to be here, John. I want to make sure to give people some background. So just tell me a little bit about where you grew up and then what was money like in your house growing up? Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair question. I uh, spent most of my childhood uh, in Colorado, just outside of Denver. My dad was a cardiac anesthesiologist. My mom was a, a band teacher. So I actually had to have my mom band as a teacher, teacher, which was slightly embarrassing. I didn't know that. You're a closet band geek. You never shared it with us. I, I was. I was. Uh, okay. um, what that, instrument? That Trumpet. Okay. Marching awesome. band is what got me out of it. Couldn't do it. Stop band. Okay. Next, right. le- next level for me. I didn't know that about your mom. Cool. But yeah, so I, um, you know, I grew up obviously, you know, in a positive household with a lot of great things and got the opportunity to do things like ski and travel and, you know, have my own bedroom when I was young. But I wasn't one of those kids that was super spoiled or kind of got whatever ever he wanted. The do you things think my your dad, dad intended, mom and dad intended to do it that way? Oh, 100%. And okay. my mom grew up in a household that wasn't super wealthy. Both of my parents actually grew up in households that weren't super wealthy. So they were very cognizant of spending, Uh, especially my mom. She would be kind of almost, uh, you know, to a fault uh, cheap at points. Um, Did she talk about it out loud with you guys or is that something you witnessed? It's more something that we witnessed. Really, my dad would speak to us more out loud about it, especially as we got older and would start to have our own jobs. And we were starting to ask for more and more expensive things. At the same time, there were certain things where my dad was always like, if you need, if you ever need books, or if you ever are interested in sports, you know, and we'll take care of that. And that I think was really cool because it showed me that, hey, there were certain things that are investments in your children and also made me happy. And I became a really Mm -hmm. avid reader when I was younger and it was Mm -hmm. always fine. You know, we'd go to Barnes and Noble and I'd pick up 10 books. And that was was never a problem with that. But, you know, if we wanted toys and then later video games, it was... uh, Yes, right. A different story. We were buying that <laughs> stuff on our own. Okay. Did they? Did you identify as a saver or a spender? It sounds like your parents were were pre- fairly good at being like uh, savers. But did you identify one way or another? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, it evolved. When I first started, and I think I had my first job when I was uh, like 15 or 16. Okay, um, I was a t- take and bake pizza shop. Um, <laughs> it, can, it was fun. I like I liked the pizza. Colorado. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Colorado. <laughs> you know, I I was just earning money to spend it on something, right? Like cool. there was some, some goal that I had that I wanted to earn money for. And so I wasn't going to waste it on something that wasn't what I was trying to earn money for, but I would spend it. Right. Yeah. Um, that's you know, that's I cool. Remember. That's a good lesson, though, to have when you're 15 and getting a first job, and that yeah, way, it's your money that it, you can spend. It's some sort of goal, right? Which I think is important for everyone. You have to have some kind of drive. But I think later, you know, what I realized, and I remember, uh, you know, when we were in college together, and I remember sitting down and eating some like chicken ramen uh, with my girlfriend at the time, <laughs> and I remember just saying, like, I hate being poor. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's awesome. That was, that's awesome. It, it like stuck out in my mind as something oh, that really? I was like, this sucks because I'm not able to get the things that I want. And wow. not only the things that I want, but the things that I know that are beneficial for me, whether it's my health or my well-being. And so I started to think about money a little bit differently then. Um, uh, how old were you at that time? I think I was 20, okay. 20 or 21. Um, do you feel like the, there was a only, is that hindsight 2020? Or do you feel like in the moment that was really a light bulb? I think the light bulb was starting to turn on then. Um, but but, you know, I wish I could say that I had one big turning point in my 20s that sure. all of a sudden I was great at saving. No, I'm still spending money on stupid things and wasting money. And then when I was really into my first career, I was still doing the same thing because I had more money than I ever know what to do with. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it started the, the thinking of, okay, there is something that I need to be able to have and yes. I need to be able to save for a rainy day. And it's not just a rainy day. It's, you know, maybe I'm going to have a hospital expense or maybe I'm going to want to take a trip to, you know, see my grandparents or something like that. That's going to be important that you don't think about when you're 18, but you start to think mm. about a little bit later. Yeah, um, definitely. You know, That's and then smart. eventually, eventually it was, you know, your earnings are to a point where you go, huh, if I'm spending this much money, I'm kind of, you know, just wasting it. Uh, I'm not getting <laughs> a lot of return from this spend. Yeah. Um, so we talked about that briefly in our, our, our conversation while we were like setting up this podcast about being in, in such a frustrating point in life when you are poor in college, that as soon as you start earning money right out of school, like it's easy to spend the next dollar that you're earning because you're just so desperate not to have top ramen. (laughs) We talked about like (laughs) the type of trap that that can be though, because then that, you know, if you, if you spend maybe even just one or two years right out of school, um, continuing to live that little bit more frugal lifestyle, you know, the, the percentage of your savings, the percentage of your income that you can save can be actually like wildly dramatic, right? Oh, massive. And there were so many things that I was really lucky to have when I did graduate. You know, I had some road bumps along the way, but, you know, ultimately, you know, getting that first job in a startup that was actually successful and rather than fizzling out is is a win. I've talked to a lot of very smart, very ambitious people who've just chosen the wrong company and it hasn't worked out for them. Oh, um, yeah, I, there's so much luck in that in that point in time moment, which is frustrating. <laughs> you know? it is, especially because you don't, you know, you're 22 years old and you really don't know what to look for and what to do. And, and that's when we talked before where I was like, if I could go back and go, okay, this is your money now. This is what you need to be thinking about. Um, And it's fine. Go have fun. Go spend money. You know, this is the fun time. This is a fun time to 
do that. But if you don't spend it on this thing this way, you're going to be netting out a lot more positive outcome later. And that's yeah. something that I wish I could go back and say then. Eventually, yeah. I started to realize that. So I have to pause there because I was thinking about that after we last talked and in preparation for this. Like, where's the line between um, being told some good advice and like taking it to heart versus just like learning the school hard knocks? Because now you, you did learn through that. And thankfully, you probably learned that like earlier on compared to maybe others out in there in the world. And so that was like a valuable lesson. So maybe it was like totally worth it. But had somebody had somebody told your younger self, would that have even made a connection? Or if you did follow their advice, I wonder if you would have just eventually had to overcome that obstacle. Like I, I guess just to, <laughs> for everybody that's listening, I'm, I'm wrapping my mind around this idea between like, you know, taking good advice versus like learning from the school of hard knocks and trying to figure out where those intertwine, which isn't, um, maybe it's rhetorical and it's not an easy thing to answer, but I, I'm interested in your feedback on it. Yeah, it's a fair point. And I think that this applies to a lot of things where someone can give you very sage advice, but ultimately are you in a position to be receptive to that advice and then actually act on that advice. And I think that the best way for me, like if I were to talk to someone that is 22, 23, what I do is say, I'd say, hey, go talk to someone maybe a few years older than you that you think is being successful, that you see as something that you want to be and get the advice from them. They can relate to you a little bit more. Um, as okay. we talked about with being raised uh, you know, in a family that, that definitely understood the value of money, that did a lot for my foundation. But if I was to go back and talk to my dad when I was 22 about his finances and what how he was managing his finances, <laughs> it wasn't going to be as relevant yeah, for me. Yeah, right. yeah, that's such but a if I talk to you, yeah, if I talk to someone who's you know, 27, 28, been successful, doing, you know, things in their career path that I can I can relate to. Yeah. Um, I think that that would resonate the most. At the same time, I still think you have to have, you know, at least one hard knock because it doesn't really set in until that happens. And, you know, there's some yeah. people that are better about that than others. And I, you know, but I think that getting someone that's relatable would be my recommendation. Mm, that's super interesting. So I, I wanted to come back and think about that when you did graduate and you went down to, was this, you, did you go directly down to San Francisco? How did you, like, what were, what was even on the table, like you didn't, you did, you chose not to go into big four accounting. So, how did you sure. come up with going to San Francisco into tech? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I don't know if you remember that I, I got deported from my first job in, in England. Oh, um, I forgot about that. I actually, I totally forgot about that. Tell everybody uh, how that, what, what that was. Sure. I mean, this is a, a naive story, right? Of uh, a 21, 22 year old that's entering their career, you know, kind of their career. <laughs> so good. Um, you know, had a family friend that was a very successful entrepreneur in the UK. He, you know, I approached him and asked for an internship, which I think was a very mature thing that I did at that point. I mean, he was like, yeah, sounds good. And then, kind of along the way before the internship was scheduled to start, I was kind of concerned because he wasn't very responsive. And <laughs> you know, I ended up packing up my stuff and flying to London Heathrow and totally taking home. a risk. Yeah. Yeah. Taking that risk. And then I get to the customs and they say, okay, well, where's your visa? And I was like, well, I was told I didn't need that type of visa. Um, and so then I got detained and then I had an <laughs> interview. Um, and oh then they were gosh. like, well, yeah, you can stay in London for the night, but your flight back home leaves tomorrow. So wow. that was a huge shock. And that's also when I I started to realize, okay, you're not in college anymore. You're taking wow. care of yourself. Every wow. risk you take, there's going to have some ramification. And 
in, in the long run, it was actually amazing. Like I think about everything that's happened in my life that would have been different had that one conversation with that Heathrow really? agent. Really? Really? Uh, yeah. I it mean, was that impactful. So weren't you, were, I mean, weren't you feeling like uh, embarrassed or frustrated or wanting to scream or call this guy? Like I can't. Oh, even... all of those things. All yeah. of those things. And I remember sitting on the tube just <laughs> going, what am I going to do? And I had really heavy bags with me too. Um, Cause I was sure. planning on moving my whole life. So oh my gosh, absolutely. So ridiculous. But, you know, I got back and I really took charge of things a lot more. I didn't rely on, I didn't think about, Oh, you know, someone's going to do the right thing or someone else is going to bail me out. Um, That's awesome. That really served me well because then I was able to take accountability from not only my own actions, but my own well-being and my own welfare. And I think that led to a lot of really positive things. And I worked in Seattle um, with the startup for two years. And then I moved down to San Francisco with that startup. And honestly, yeah, for the first first few years, I I didn't think about money. I wasn't really my main goal. My main goal was just growth and learning within that organization and taking on more and more responsibility and, you know, ultimately mm. making sure that organization found success. And mm. to today, I still look for, for people that are thinking that way. Um, you know, it's fine to be money hungry, but if you're only that, a lot of times yeah. I think that can limit your career growth. So you might do very well point. in that one position, yes, um, but you won't get beyond that. And so I ended up getting, I guess, five promotions with that company um, before yeah, I decided to move on between Seattle and San Francisco. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I, there's so much that she's talked about that I want to come back to. I mean, first, sure. you you did a revisit back to the UK. So I want to talk about <laughs> your business school experience in a sec. And then I also want sure. to talk about now you're on the other side, you know, 30 and now hiring people that are coming right out of school and talking about sort of what attributes they should or shouldn't have. So maybe we can come back to those in just a second. Let's see, you, so you moved down to San Francisco and you were there for a few years and certainly growing and like learning a ton. When was the point where you thought that why was business school like a, the next most logical step? Yeah, I think it was a, a life piece more than it was a career piece. Uh, I looked at what I'd done and I was proud of what I'd done. But there were certain things that were limited to me because I was still, I think I was 26 or 27 at the time. And, you know, was thinking, okay, I want to get that next step in my career, I think. But I'm not sure that this company is really where I want to do that or where I want to continue with. I loved the company. Yeah. Uh, I, had, I, I, you know, met a ton of great people, but it wasn't necessarily wanted to do. So I was like, you know, what would be great is if I could kind of step away from thinking constantly about getting that next job hmm. um, and really be more thoughtful about what my approach is. And at the yeah, same push time, pause for a second, that's smart. Yeah. But also at the same time, you know, continue to learn and advance my life. And, you know, I was like, okay, well, I took the GMAT. I had taken the GMAT four years before and I was like, well, I'm going to get my MBA. Now is the time. Okay, uh, right. Because there's, is, did you use that score from four years earlier? Isn't there an extra? I did. To five I did. Years? It does expire in five years. Um, okay. And, um, you know, I had just taken the test kind of randomly. You know, I wasn't necessarily <laughs> thinking about going to my MBA right then. And I, I just okay. did it mostly because I was bored at home and decided to study for it and take it. Wow. Closet, closet <laughs> band geek turned closet at GMAT nerd. I don't know of anybody who would like willfully want to do that. I guess you're maybe is, is smart for thinking. Should somebody um, that's even remotely considering, because like you come out of school and probably have some of that muscle memory of studying and yeah. 
lot more free time and less responsibilities. Is that a nice like ace to have? Is that a nice card to have in your back pocket as a recent? Uh, I mean, it's I certainly liked not having to take the test when I was you know 27. Um, I would caution people to not jump directly into their MBA without work experience. Good point. It's not uh, going to be as applicable, and you're not going to understand and appreciate That's, the value well, um, exactly. when you're right out of college. I totally agree. Yeah. Take Why Oxford? Um, like, and, and that's it. I think, you know, if, if I, I haven't gone to business school. I considered it very briefly and I decided for my career path for being a financial planner that that wasn't something that I really wanted to do. You know, when I was considering it, I thought of like your typical UCLA or Berkeley, Chicago, Stanford, yada, yada. And um, how did even Oxford like <laughs> come onto your radar? Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking the same thing, right? I was, uh, when I was taking the GMAT, I was thinking Haas and Berkeley would be amazing. But then when I really wanted to, to actually do it, I was like, why am I doing this? I'm doing this to give myself a new perspective on my career path. And going somewhere uh, like Berkeley, which is an amazing school, I didn't believe that that would have given me as a diverse perspective as going somewhere like Oxford. You know, in Berkeley, I'm going to be with a lot of people that have backgrounds in software technology, you know, backgrounds that were similar to me. And at Oxford, that was not the case. There was very few people with any really that had a similar background to me. That's there awesome. were 58 countries represented and ultimately it had that brand value still, right? You know, there's a lot of great schools in Europe, but I think few of them translate to the US just in terms of, you know, as okay. a hiring manager understanding, okay, you know, INSEAD, that's a great school, but have I heard of it? You know, but Oxford, everyone has heard of. And so that was attractive for me. The other hmm. big thing, you know, and huge reason that I decided to go to Europe is not just for life experience. I traveled to 11 countries while I was there and that was oh, really cool. fun. But it was also because it's a one-year program. And so you're not only only paying for one year, you're also working that additional year as well. So it's a lot less of a financial investment. Um, Yeah, and a time investment too. You know, I think even maybe two years on the surface isn't like a long time, but I think in the thick of it, it could feel like forever. (laughs) Like Exactly. And then while while everybody else is continuing to work and possibly pursue, like expand their career. So that's right. I had forgotten that it was a one-year program. 100%. And, you know, for, for others... It might make more sense to do a two-year. Um, I felt that I was already kind of at a little bit more of a senior stage of my career, and so that you know I didn't necessarily, or I didn't necessarily go into the MBA thinking, okay, I need this two years to build my resume to then get a job at like a big four. That was not the route that I was going to take. But I think yeah. that for a lot of people, and some of the people that you and I know, I've had a ton of success uh, with those two-year MBAs as well. So it's not that the one-year MBA is the end-all, be-all. But I think for me in my position, it was it was the right thing to. So another thing that I hear about MBA is that people use that. Like we had friends that did teach for America and they needed like, they, they wanted to go into a career in corporate finance, but they're, they weren't necessarily going to get hired for that because there just wasn't a clear logical step. So they use business school as like the stepping stone for that. For you, you had worked in tech in San Francisco. Did you assume that you were going to go back there or did you start with a clean slate when you were going into business school? Like I want to use this as a stepping stone into HR or something else. That's a great 
great question. I didn't quite have a blank slate. I very much so enjoyed working in software and working in technology. And I was fairly confident that I wanted to continue to be in that space. In what capacity, that's what I was really reevaluating. Okay. Capacity in terms of like being a sales versus like management or what do you mean by capacity? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I could go and, you know, I talked to uh, companies like Boston Consulting Group Digital Ventures, which is a, it's both an incubator and kind of a, um, an angel investor within startups. And so Mm -hmm. that was something where I was like, okay, I can do kind of consulting work, but I can also involve investments and I can also involve technology. That sounds like a very cool blend, you know, and I had a, a substantial background in marketing. It's definitely still an area that I have a lot of, you know, expertise in. And so I was looking at a lot of things like that too, whether it was kind of head of demand generation for a software company and, and how that would be influential. So that was part of what I was going back to reevaluate, but I really thought technology, we were also reevaluating where we wanted to be. I was pretty confident that California was where I needed to be, okay. um, but I was open to the idea. I was open to the idea of living in the UK or elsewhere uh, to pursue that next step of my career. Were you engaged at this point when you were at in? I was, yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So and- that's another, another, another layer to the deciding factor. Definitely. Yeah. Um, how has being married changed how you go about thinking about your career or even just your day to day? More than can be explained. I think you know, <laughs> as, as, another, as another married man, um, <laughs> yeah. you can relate, you know, but ultimately uh, when I was first, when we were first married, there was a lot of financial stress. And looking back, you know, I'd come back from my MBA. I was starting a new job. I'd moved back to California and we were getting married and we were doing it ourselves. Right. And so that was a lot. Yeah. It was yeah, a lot so to that's do a perfect months. storm of three, three super hard things. Yeah. Yes. I wouldn't, I would not recommend that for other people. I'm glad you survived. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we survived too. And ultimately I think we were stronger for that, but that actually, that both the experience in the MBA and that experience helped us get a little bit more level on, in terms of our financial outlook and in terms of mm. our financial plan, because mm. I think before that, my wife was, was very much so thinking like, I'm making money to do things. Um, and I'm not thinking about the long term. And that really caused us to say, hey, you know, we want to have this type of life. If we're going to have this type of life in the long term for our life and for our children, hopefully, you know, we need to we need to start doing some some things differently. And so that was really good. But at the same time, you know, there are pieces now where I'm not just thinking about kind of my own financial plan. I'm thinking about her and I'm also trying to give her some flexibility to work through her career, um, you know, where where finances are concerned. So that's something that, that has definitely changed my outlook, but it's, but that it's needs been to be its own positive. conversation in and of itself. I feel oh, for sure. I'm, I'm even thinking about so many things that I can talk about. I'll, I'll bring it back in. Then let's think. Um, another thing we had talked about in a previous conversation is sort of this like this dangling carrot of equity and how Silicon Valley specifically and like private companies that are tech startups, they like to sort of dangle this ahead. And I'm wondering if that's just sort of the, you know, that's like the, um, they're invoking this, you know, this greed and excitement, almost like winning the lottery. So like for our peers and most of the people that were your colleagues in San Francisco, how many of them actually get to receive equity and then find any type of reward from it? You know, is it, do we only hear the stories of the 0.01% of the population that like get lucky on a, um, you know, on an Uber IPO or is it more common maybe than just 0.01%? Yeah. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right in that it is, it is uncommon, even if you are working and, you know, if you're working in a more senior role for a startup that is successful, your probability of netting real, real cash 
cash from that is is pretty low. And I think your probability of, of joining a startup that is successful is another probability that you have to factor in. And then your probability of being in a more senior role is another probability you factor in. <laughs> and when you yeah. think about all that, you know, the value of equity diminishes significantly. You know, at the same time, I think the way that companies use equity is they try to use it as a carrot for those more either junior employees that they're trying to bring in with a lower salary or they're really early stage and they want to convince people that are used to making more money to join their organization. Okay. For me, again, I think money is is always going to be important. You have to be thinking about what your salary, your variables, all of those pieces are. But really joining the right organization, that's served me the best in terms mm, of really cool. uh, yeah. things that are aligned. And how much equity you get or don't get with that company, you know, I think that that's, that's something that you can always discuss, but it's really more of a cherry on top. It's more of a an extra things happen to turn out well. <clears throat> I wouldn't awesome. say that I know most people, you know, many people at all, even in more senior roles who have made substantial okay. income from equity that they mm, could have made through, through okay. more, you know, just from a base salary. Or potential. Yeah. Um, and so I, I want to think about like now your role, you do a considerable amount of hiring. I can't remember the number of sure. people that you hired in the, the short number of years. So give me how many years have you been in this new job post MBA? How many people have you hired? And then like, um, I guess another question as I'm thinking things, you know, on the surface, being down here in Orange County and people talking about Silicon Valley, one of the things on the surface you hear is that people jump around a lot. So in actual practice, you're looking at people's resumes. So do you see people move around a lot? And is that any type of concern or is that just part of the culture? So there's there's 15 questions for you, but I guess tell me <laughs> you're, you've been how long you've been at this new job and how many people have you hired? Sure. So um, I've been with my company for a little under two years. I probably hired just under maybe just over 30 people um, between account executive sales development roles in really all kind of sectors. So kind of some more senior account executive salespeople that have, you know, seven plus years experience to, you know, some sales development reps that are just coming out of college. Okay. It's really both. It's a huge um, range. It is. Yeah. And you do have to look for different things. I find myself sometimes getting in a rut, having conversations with account executives. And then I go to interview a sales development representative and I'm kind of like, well, they don't have, you know, any of this, <laughs> these abilities. And then it's kind of like, well, yeah, they shouldn't. They're, you know, they're new in their career. So okay. it takes a second for me to pivot. Um, <laughs> your, uh, your second question regarding jumping around, we do look at that. That is obviously a massive trend. I think people are looking for how they can jump steps in their career, kind of leapfrog up in their career by going company to company. But I've very rarely seen anyone successfully do that. And if they oh, have done that, super interesting. Yeah, okay. It's usually that they have some promise of more money. So this is the most common where I'll see someone say, Hey, yeah, uh, you know, I've I went to this company and, and then this other company offered me more. So I decided to jump there and then they went under or they were restructured or X, Y, and Z happened that ended up resulting in me in the first place. Um wow. which is again why I go join the right company, get behind mm. a product you like, get behind leadership mm. that you like, because mm. whether you stay with that company company or not, that's going to be something, you know, you're going to be successful in that role. Mm. And you're also going to hopefully benefit from relationships that you establish there. And then yeah. you'll probably spend more time in there than you would otherwise. You'll probably get promotions there. Yeah. On that same note, you know, I certainly reaped a lot of benefits from working with a small organization. And I personally, and I'm biased, but I personally would recommend that people do start their career in a little bit of a smaller organization. You know, yeah. I forget where I, I heard have a, this. I have a different 
pers- I have an, I'll share my perspective on that because it's different, but not necessarily in a, in a bad or different way. I can see the pros and cons in it, but yeah, I'm going to, yes. sorry, I interrupted you. What were you going to say at the last? No, point. no. And I, I could understand a different perspective, but I think that for me, uh, you know, a small fish grows bigger in a small pond. Um, hmm. you, know, you know, you have those opportunities to advance. You have those opportunities to do more than just your role and whether or not you officially get the promotion or that next step, you usually have to take on some more scope and that equips you better to be a better business employee. You know, whether or not, like if you join an organization in a sales role that is very large organization, a lot of times that role is going to be so structured out, you're going to have very little opportunity to kind of go beyond the scope of that role. And then if you were trying to join a startup, you're all of a sudden like, I don't know how to do all these other things that you're asking me to do. Vice Mm. versa, you're very well equipped. And then you can actually add more value to that business because you're like, hey, I can do all of those things and I can do even more. That's my recommendation, but that's, like I said, it's biased. (laughs) Well, totally. Well, I think you brought up some good things that I didn't think about before. I think when just super quickly, like my experience out of college, I was uh, very confused on what to do. I wasn't a finance major, which is sort of blasphemous when you tell people that now, like I'm a financial planner. And so I think I needed the structure of a big company to like give me some, a, a box to work in. And then I eventually, once I latched onto it, I was able to flourish out of it. So I think maybe sure. it was just a product of my uh, school experience. I wasn't super focused in college. And so I wasn't that I really like took my career seriously, actually until two years into my career when I did my, my CFP certificate, the certified financial mm-hmm. planning. And then I was like, okay, got it. I wish I was as focused in school. And so I kind of, I'm, I'm thankful that the big corporation sort of like, <laughs> let me be an idiot for two more years and until I figured it out, but um, and sure. then I once I once I realized that though, then I quickly needed to to jump ship. There was um I wanted to ask about hiring one more time, but then I also wanted to ask about like we chatted in our previous conversation about being in um you know building wealth via some type of business development role rather than just moving up some other moving up some other vertical of a corporate ladder. So right. um, I wanted to hit on that in just a second. So hiring, have you <laughs> had any anything maybe even fun story to share? But like what's what are one or two quick do's and don'ts for people that are looking to change jobs for, from your perspective as a hiring manager? Yeah, I've, I've certainly had my share of interesting interviews and also interesting hires. Um, and I've had people flourish with me and I've had to let people go, which is obviously never fun. Um, but I think that one of the keys I look for is actually what questions people ask. And I think that a lot of people say that, um, but it's not just, hey, do you have 40 questions to ask me? Because I don't have the time to answer 40 questions, but it's your choices on which questions you ask demonstrate a lot about how effective you're going to be in this role. Because to me, if someone's thinking about the opportunity seriously, they're going to ask about things like, how are you, you know, dealing with this competitive situation that just occurred in the news? They're also showing me that they've done their research and that they're logical. Um, They're thinking about potential potential threats, you know, to to their ability to be successful in that job and also about what the potential opportunity is. And so that that means a lot to me. I also think that I'm I'm kind of the the old school person in, in the young body. Um, I really appreciate that people are, people are organized, people show up on time, people work, people go beyond the call of duty. Um, great? Just some bla- basic blocking and tackling that gets yes. easily overlooked. <laughs> you know, and I know that, you know, especially the millennial generation has really pushed a lot of the working from home or flexible working. And, you know, for me, um, 
there have been a few people that I've seen be successful in those type of roles, but realistically, very few. Um, most of the folks that I would oh, give that flexibility and autonomy to because they've shown me that they... Because they've earned the it. Job, yeah. yeah, they've earned it. They're still the ones that are first in the office and last out at the end of the day, you know, yeah. and... yeah. And that's, I think, means a lot to me. You know, I, I'm not a, like, I'm definitely in favor of flexibility. I just think it has to be earned. And a lot of times people go in thinking that it's assumed. It's something that I already have the right to. And, and that's, I think, obviously a, a fatal assumption, whether yeah, that organization yeah, says point. that they like that or not. Um, yes. I think that it's not going to work out well either way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Super fun. It's already, we're, we're getting close to our time. We've got to wrap up soon. Another question of like, at this point, you've had obvious learning steps that you've referenced before. And now that you're married and you're thinking about your family in a different way, that's one of the things that are driving you. But what, what's a what's a shiny star off in the distance? What do you envision for yourself in the future? And, and, and is that what's driving you day in and day out? So what is that kind of like underlying motivation for your career at this point? Yeah, I mean, I have, I probably have more concrete idea about what I want in my career than I've ever had, which is nice. And it's also challenging because knowing what you want and and knowing what it's going to take to get there uh, can be can be daunting. So I'd certainly like to be VP of sales at my current company. It's essentially what I am doing today, but it's not the title that I have. So I'd like to move into that role and ideally then own an entire revenue organization. So not just the sales team, but also the customer success team. So for me, that's cool. a goal. And cool. that's not necessarily financially driven. It's just my sure. personal goal of achievement. Yeah, cool. Financially, I would like to be able to not rent anymore. That's you know, huge. and that's that's totally. extremely challenging. It's Francisco. Um, totally. But ultimately, uh, it's something that's achievable for me probably within the next year. Um, and so that would be that'd be a massive achievement like for my wife and I. And that's really what's driving me now. I like that. And I like that you're you're breaking it down into maybe maybe less is more in this moment. And one of my big things that I encourage sort of young accumulators in the uh, millennial generation to is, you know, we can focus on things like um, college savings or retirement savings or things elsewhere, but it's so much more impactful if you can just hone in on one or two goals and save or invest like a madman to achieve that one purpose. And um, it ends up, you know, happening a lot faster if you can say focus on that thing. Like I'm sure it can translate to other parts of life, but it's uh, cool to hear that that's what's... uh, that's what's keeping you going right now. Anything else on your mind that we didn't talk about that you want to say? So we didn't talk about the sales and business development piece. And mm, so that is one, right. one thing that I would just want to preach about for a minute. Preach. You know, ultimately, I think when I was in school, and you probably felt the same way, it wasn't, I didn't look at sales as a career that would really be super beneficial for me or propel me to, you know, great financial success. It had a stigma to that word. Or is it just the word sales was was uh, off-putting or is it nobody connected the they can, nobody connected the dots <laughs> I think yeah it's absolutely that, that's true and I think people aren't like oh you know you need to have a business school degree or an MBA to be successful in sales and I think that that's absolutely false the most successful salespeople that I know are very well educated they're very effective at understanding other customers businesses because they have that business understanding yeah um, and they're also very financially successful so I would yeah. say that you know for for those people that are thinking 
about what their career is at very high earning potential relatively early in your career. And you can really grow that massively. And you can also increase the scope. So we talked in our last conversation about how salespeople often can move into, you know, a VP of sales role. But as you move into really any senior role, you're going to have some elements of, of sales involved. And so getting that experience early on is something I just recommend. You've preached a little bit about sales and the changing mindset um, between, you know, not just uh, have that be sort of an icky word, you know, but what it can actually mean for your career. So who the people that you've seen in sales, what are they like? And what are some of the attributes that we should be thinking about and changing our perspective on that work? Yeah, I mean, I think that the traditional look on a salesperson is kind of that gregarious life of the party type person. And that's really more rarely the case. It's usually the person that's actually very well educated that understands business that understands customers business that really has a deep interest in the product and technology that they're representing, because that's that's then conveyed to the customer. And then ultimately, they're actually able to add a lot of value rather than just kind of pushing a solution. And so that's where I've seen a lot of success. I'd also awesome. say, yeah, I'd also say that for people that are early stage in their career, it's one of the ways that you can earn a lot higher, you know, when you're relatively junior. And then as you're advancing your career, it really becomes a requirement regardless of your industry or, or your role that you have some ability or experience in sales. And we talked about this before, but even if you are an engineer, and you are working in an engineering firm, as you get to a more senior level, you're going to have to then work with customers. Right. Customers require some sales acumen. And that's where, you know, some people that don't take that step, that don't learn sales, they will fall on their face. So it can be really beneficial, regardless of if it is a career, to get some solid foundational knowledge in it. Yeah, I can totally relate. And I think I felt really put off by just everything around sales. No one had to, no one like explained that with me or, or sat me down until I started reading more on it and then understand that, um, you know, if you just reorient your mind on what you're doing, which is actually learning about somebody's pain point and using any type of service or product you have to solve an issue in them, what you're doing is potentially changing this person's life. And so that moment for me, it took probably, it took a few years for me to really ratchet it. And so I'm still new in that new new type of thinking, but couldn't agree more. I could go on for another hour or so. So we'll have to have you back another time, Chris. Thanks so much for being here, yeah. man. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure, John. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week. 